0: Luke 7, and it's from verse 36. One of the Pharisees requested Jesus to come and have dinner with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. In other words, she was an immoral woman. She was a prostitute. And when she learned that he was reclining at the Pharisee's house at his table, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. That she's a. Reprobate, an immoral woman, a prostitute, a no good, whatever language you want. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so he says to Jesus, Jesus. Teacher, rabbi, say it. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to pay, repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave me. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven, forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Some years back in Stellenbosch, Stellenbosch is, a, is one of the centers of culture and arts and um, music and all sorts of other things in South Africa. And as such, there's a conglomeration of all sorts of people who meet there. They had some of, there were a couple of really stunning art and antique shops. And I used to frequent them. I loved poking around and seeing what they had. And the one day Gail and I were in there and Gail was off the bat looking at something else. And I saw these two things hanging on a side wall, magnificent gold frames. And I strolled over to have a look at them closer and one was a scene of Hart Bay, which is a little fishing bay village uh, in Cape Town area. And the other was of uh, the Vic Falls in all its thunderous majesty. And they were etchings, delicate, detailed etchings, exquisite pieces. And then I looked a bit further and they were both by Tinas de Jong. And Tinas de Jong is one of the preeminent South African artists from the last century, beginning of the last century. And I noticed not only were they signed, they were numbered, they were in the low numbers, which is always a good sign for for an etching. And they had his seal, his stamp on it. And I thought, oh, these are beautiful. They They were just beautifully, they're about that size. The frames are about this big. And I looked at it and I thought, and then I looked at the side and I saw the price. And I thought, oh my word. I Can't really afford that, but that that's a steal. That's that's a bargain. So I took the one off and I said to Girl, we're gonna buy these two. And she said, no, why don't we, where are we going to put them? Where are we going to put the walls in the house? And then we're going to buy these two things. Anyway, I'll cut a long story short because it, it was a little bit longer than that. But as I was paying for this thing, it was in South African rands 400 for each, which is about 20 pounds in current money. Even if it was 100 pounds, it, uh, it was a steal. And as the woman was doing my credit card, she, she, she looked at it, and she looked at these things. She was the owner, and she looked at me, and she said, I've made a mistake, haven't I? So I just went. <laughs> Fortunately, it had been processed. Those things are worth thousands of pounds each. I have never, in all my years of being in galleries, looking at pictures, ever seen two things framed as magnificently as those two things are and they hang in my dining room. You see, we we assign value to things, but we also have to recognize the value. Now on that happy occasion, I was able to look at those things and recognize value. She had been probably so busy with all these things that she had just slapped a thing on it and I bought many things from her in the past, but she had that had slipped through the net. The ability to assign value when it comes to human beings, not things, is a rare and precious gift. We ogle at Antiques Roadshow, because we dine dying to see that one thing that someone brings in that their granny gave them, or that they bought at a boot sale for three pounds that is worth 25,000 pounds. Why? Because we long to see things that are of high value. We do. But when it comes to people, individuals, we often, we often scrap we don't look at things in the same way that God looks at things. So, I think every human being has a tag on them that says "Take it as is." In Afrikaans, there's a brilliant word. It's "footstuds," which means whatever faults there are, there once you've paid the price, it's yours. You buy a house in South Africa. At South Africa, futstuts. That's it. Any latent defect you have to deal with. And all human beings have got that footstool that as is sticker on them. Because when you come into a relationship with somebody, you don't initially know what you're going to get. There's always stuff that keeps coming through and coming. And you don't always like it. In fact, there's almost a guarantee that there is something In every other human being that you come into contact with, even the ones that you love and are close to you, that is going to rub you up the wrong way. That's why there's a proverb that says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man or one woman sharpens another. That's the one tag that we have. But there is another label that we carry, which says, made in the image of God, incredibly precious infinitely loved what we tend to see is the cheaper price we tend to see those things that jump right out of it the fact that you are angular with me and that it really gets on my gut the fact that you are negative the fact that you find fault with everything the fact that whatever it happens to be and we could list a list as long as you're on. That's not the point. The point that is that underlying all of that, there is a fundamental thing that is deeper, way more profound in terms of value. It's seeing things the way that God sees them. Now, in our society, we honor people. And I'm not going to go into this today because we can. you can think about it. How do we honor people? Who do we honor? What do we do with them? Who do we dishonor? Just think of the celebrities and the stars, and it's it's kind of a vacuous system. But here we come to Luke 7. And let's do this in, in four scenes. Ian's gonna write a play about this one day, I'm sure. <laughs> Scene one: Jesus is invited. And it's important to actually make that point that he was invited by the Pharisee because, as a visiting rabbi, as a person who is recognized as a teacher, there were certain rules of etiquette that would apply, certain rules that would be in play for a visit like that, as it is now. It was customary that when somebody came into the house, You greeted them. You said, how's it? Hello. You gave them a kiss. Now there were different levels of greeting. So it wasn't, this is not, we're not talking affection here. We're just talking civility, manners, etiquette. And you would find that um, every guest who was coming would be politely acknowledged in some way or another. If he was regarded or she was regarded as an equal, then you would kiss them on the cheek. If it was a child acknowledging a parent or a, a student acknowledging a rabbi, then you would kiss them on the hand. That's why Judas, the kiss of Judas is such a, a real slap to Jesus because he's basically acknowledging and honoring him and at the same time stabbing him in the heart. It's, it's that amazing twist that he does. Anyway, we're not going into that now. But to neglect that, to not greet with a kiss, someone you have invited as a guest, is, is literally a slap in the face. Secondly, When you arrived at a meal that you'd been invited to, you would have your feet washed. It was dirty, dusty. Uh, How can we put this politely? There's no way. There There were animals all over the show. When you arrived, your feet were not clean. There was probably feces of some sort between your toes. It wasn't only that it was pleasant to have your feet massaged. It was a function of health and civility that you would have your feet washed. Now, the higher your status, the more important it was. So if you were honored as a guest, the host himself would actually wash your feet. If you were just somebody, then one of the servants would wash your feet. Often, what happened was they would just hand you a bucket and say, Do your own. They really are (laughs) messy. Which was borderline offensive. Let's just get it there. Washing your own feet when you've been invited to a party was kind of borderline stuff. And then, thirdly, so it's a kiss, the washing of the feet. And then, thirdly, there was the thoughtful host, let's put it this way would have anointed you with probably olive oil. Let's just say Israel is stinking hot. No air conditioning, no deodorant. You don't have to use your imagination too much. It was a way of refreshing people and, and making the place smell like Eliza Doolittle in the little posy of violets when you went out in polite society in London years ago. Here's the thing in the story. Scene one, Jesus has entered. No kiss at all. No washing his feet at all. No anointing at all. He's not, not, if you like, an obscure carpenter from up north any longer. Here is a man who's attracting thousands of people. Way that he teaches. And so these are not subtle omissions. These are not just oops, I forgot kind of things. These are deliberate, intentional slaps in the face. One after the other to Jesus by Simon. And here's the thing. Everybody in the room knows this. And you can almost feel, feel them saying, Because it's that kind of thing. And the insult is intentional. It's hostile. It's not quite a declaration of war, but it is a special military operation. And so there'll be tension in the room. That's scene one. This prickly static in the room because of what's not happening. Scene two. Banquets of public affairs, the comings and goings, the courtyards of these uh, wealthier people were places where people would come and go. And the way that you ate was to have the table and then you would all lie down facing inwards towards the table, A bit like the Roman style of eating. And there is this woman, as we said, of ill repute, immoral, prostitute on the fringes of society at best. You see, prostitutes in this context were either slaves and um, prisoners of war who'd been trafficked into the, the sex trade or else they were abandoned children, but they were certainly not from the upper echelons of your social hierarchy. They were the nobodies who got swept under the carpet and who were basically preyed upon. A person who is rejected, ostracized, and who is never, ever acceptable. And she learns of Jesus at the, at the mill and she comes in, and she, she must know. Look, we don't want to read too much in here, but she must know that when she enters into that space, that she's going to be a complete outsider. This is not in the dark of night. This is in, this is in the broad glare of public s- spectacle. And she walks into the room. What is she going to do? And what she does catches everybody by surprise. She kisses his feet, not his cheek, not his hand, But his feet, that's real humility. That's really, don't forget what I said a few seconds ago. His feet are unwashed at this point. And she kisses them. And there are floods of tears and they begin to fall all over his feet and splatter them. Now, we we generally read, as I read it earlier, we read in fast forward. The whole scene is done. But if you stop it and slow it down slightly, there she is in this room of people who have got food and their servants all over, and she's weeping. And the tears are flowing sufficiently to wet his feet. That is messy crying, if you've ever seen it. That's floods of tears, as they say. There is kind of a heartbrokenness involved in this. And she floods his feet with her tears. Oh dear, how do you dry it? Can't ask for a towel. So she undoes her hair because women always had their head up as a sign of respect. Hair down was regarded as being provocative. And if you were a a proper woman and you let your hair down, it was grounds for divorce because you were basically making eyes at another man. She takes her hair down and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. She's now wiping off the mud from his feet that she's created with her tears with her hair. We thought the party was good to begin with because Simon has really just Jesus in scene one. Scene two is even better. It's more dramatic because this woman has come and kissed his feet, wept all over him. There's the emotional drama of her taking her hair down and drying his feet. This is getting, for for the visitors, this is getting better and better. My word. You see, Simon is the focus of scene one the woman is the focus of scene two as she does this the focus of scene three is jesus because in verse 39 simon's saying to himself oh my word this is not going the way i planned it something's going wrong and he thinks to himself this guy if he had an ounce of righteousness, or if he was a prophet of any kind, he would know what this woman is. See, the thing is that Jesus knows this woman, and he knows Simon. It's phenomenal. And so, without Simon saying a word, it says, in verse 14, Jesus answered him and said, it specifically says that he thought in his heart. But without saying a word, Jesus says, Simon, let me tell you. A, let me, uh, I have something to say to you. He says. And Simon says, Rabbi, say it. All the ears are pricked up. now. Is he going to confront Simon? What's he going to say? So he tells a story. Another story, a parable. And the parable goes like this. There was a moneylender. Two guys owed him a lot of money. One owed him four months' salary. The other owed him approximately four years' worth of salary. Now I can see you computing in your heads your salary: four months' salary versus four years' salary. And then, so, so what? That's the only time that they use the word moneylender testament that's the only time it's ever used and it means somebody who who lends money at a usurious interest it cripples you and these two guys are in the same boat four months four years worth of salary. they can't they can't do it neither of them can pay it back they are stitched and the money lender the loan shark it says graciously forgives them both. Now, already, this story is on its head because they don't do that sort of thing. You know, Fred the the knife or whatever his name is, he's not going to give forgiveness on debt. He's going to collect every last penny, even if he squeezes it out of your grandmother. But he forgives them graciously their, their entire debt. And then Jesus says to Simon, which of them, which of them loves him more? What do you think? Simon says, well, you see, he's stuck now, isn't he? He's really, he's really, he's been painted into a corner really because the answer is obvious to everyone in the room isn't it so he says well i suppose it's the one who was forgiven and jesus says bingo well done and i'm sure there's a there's an element of you see jesus is now in the scene he's turned the room around and I'm sure there's a level of humor in this whole thing he's essentially saying to him wow well done bit of sarcasm I don't know you've judged correctly and in the saying of that he does this and this is this is scene four because this is one of the great conversations of, of the Bible
1: in that moment
0: when he says Woohoo, well done you got it he, he, he continues in the same breath almost, and he turns, I was going to turn and look at you but I don't think I should.
1: <laughs> he, okay, I'll
0: do it this way. He turns and he looks at the woman, but he continues to speak to Simon. He's, what he's doing is he's including the woman into this conversation, he's bringing her in. So if I'm having a conversation with Marnie and I start to look at Kathy and I'm talking, you in, instinctively what Marnie will do is he will look over at Kathy because he want to see what I'm talking about. What Jesus is doing is he's bringing, this is now not a one-way or a two-way conversation, it's a three-way conversation where the woman hasn't spoken. She had no place to speak. But Jesus including her. And essentially what he's doing is he's making Simon look at her. And he looks at the woman and he says, do you see this woman? Because, of course, the answer everybody knows is no. We, we know what she is, but we do not see this woman. We don't see who she is. How she's got here. What the product of her life is. Why is she doing this thing? She is judged by our etiquette rules, our societal rules. He's also sending a message to the woman. By bringing her into the conversation, he's saying, come on, come in, come into it. And he says to to Simon, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. He addresses the issues. He brings them out onto the table and he goes through this thing and he says to him, you did not and the woman did, you did not and this woman has, you did not and look what she's done. You didn't kiss me Simon, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet, stop it now, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I've come in here. You didn't wash my feet, but she used her tears and her hair to clean my feet. You didn't anoint me, but she's taken this alabaster jar, which is probably somehow tied to her because it's uh, so important, so precious that it's probably her wealth, her fortune, everything. And she takes all of that perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet. You didn't even anoint me with a bit of olive oil. It's cost her everything. She's put her reputation on the line. She's put her savings on the line. And now she's actually, by coming out, put her job on the line. There is no half measure here. Look at the way she's weeping. Look at what she's done. She's exposed herself entirely. Here's what I think he's saying to Simon. Simon... You look at this woman and you think she owes four months salary. I mean, four years salary. But you are the one who is the great debtor. You are the one who needs to be forgiven. He's looking at this woman and he's saying to her, by, being, by being, uh, in allowing her to be engaged with him in this way, By her taking her hair down and touching him like this, he has become unclean. He has become tainted, uh, defiled, if you like, by her touch and her presence. He's sharing in her pain and in her humiliation. And I don't need to extrapolate that to the cross and for all of us, basically. But what he's doing is he's turning the entire situation on its head. And he's saying to Simon, you are the one who has the greater debt and then he, I'm not going to go into the, the last section where he says to her, go in peace, but essentially what I want to come to is this, that we have that power in our hands. The way we see people, the way we react to people, the way we interact with them and have relationship with them, we either say, you're not really worth much, or we say, we see the label that God has given you, born in my image, marked by my love. I found this story just to end with. Better do that. Um, anyway, I won't bore you with where it comes from, but it's, it's, it's about a little boy called Teddy Stollard in the States. And this goes back quite a few years. Um, it was in a, 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 a book on sermons that I had years ago. And it says, he was not the kind of kid who got invited to parties. You know immediately what kind of kid that is. He slouched in his chair. He looked bored most of the time. He only spoke when called upon and then only in monosyllables. He never dressed right. His clothes smelt. He was rather unattractive as it goes. And the teacher was particularly hard on him because he wasn't like the other boys. And she would put an F on his paper with a certain relish. Now, his history was on record and it should have been better than that. But we are going back quite a bit of time. In, let's let's just say year one, He was he was a good boy and he showed promise and uh, it was noted on his record that he had a poor home situation, but he was okay. Year two, he was way more quiet and withdrawn. His mother was terminally ill. Year three, he's falling behind. His mother died that year, and his father is disinterested and uninvolved. Year four, he's hopelessly behind. He's at the back of everything. His father has moved away and he's now living with an aunt who gives him a hard time. He's a little bloke. Then Christmas came and all the children brought their presents to school and placed them on the teacher's desk. And apparently, this was the ritual at that time that the teacher would take each present and open it, and there would be oohs and ahs, and they would, she would, you know, they would say, "That's for me, that's for me." And then it came to um, Teddy's gift. All the others were wrapped in special paper. He had a bit of old, reused, repurposed brown paper, and she opened it. And there was a rhinestone bracelet where most of the stones were gone. And a little bottle of perfume that was almost empty. And the other children started to laugh. She caught herself, Miss, Miss Thompson, this is, and she snapped on the bracelet. And she um, said, isn't it lovely class? And doesn't this perfume smell good as she applied it to herself? Here's the thing. At the end of the class, Teddy approached her shyly and he said this, this is a quote from Mrs. Thompson. She said, this is what he said. I'm glad you liked my gifts, Miss Thompson. He whispered. Sorry. All day long, you smelled like my mother and her bracelet nice on me too. After he left, she put her head down on her desk and wept. And she asked God to forgive. Anyway, the long story short is this, that the next day she made an effort and she started to look after all the kids in the class who were behind. By the end of the year, he just about made it up. She got three notes from Teddy over the years. Because they kept in touch after all that. This was the first one Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know I'm graduating from high school and I am second in my class. Love, Teddy Stollard. Some four years later, there was this note. She got Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know I'm graduating first in my class. The university has not been easy, but I liked it. Love, Teddy Stollard. Another four years later, she got this note dear miss thompson i wanted you to be the first to know that as of today i am theodore j stollard md how about that question mark i want you to come sit where my mother would have sat because you're the nearest thing to family that i've ever had we have a choice guys we either look at people and the way they present to us because all their brokenness and woundedness comes flying out at us and we react or we behave like Jesus did and instead of responding to the slights and and, and the slaps that we get socially and in other ways we see what is actually there both in the pharisee and in the woman who is completely broken and crippled You see, we assign value, and we are quick to assign value like Miss Thompson did. But Jesus calls us to be bigger than that. He calls us to be kingdom people. He calls us to love and to be graceful people who offer everybody that we meet the chance to be who God has called them to be. In all their brokenness and woundedness. He says to her. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I'm trusting that he'll say to us. In this room this morning. Because we are probably. More in the place of the Pharisee. Than we are in the place of the woman. I'm trusting that he will say to us. As we leave and go into this week. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. You have been saved, not as a historic thing, but in this moment, in this day, so that we can be who he calls us to be, agents of his life and his love and his grace.